I'm here with Michael Hecht, who heads something called the Greater New Orleans Inc. Um, it's an organization to promote economic development. But when you're promoting economic development, you really have to be looking at the big picture, because if the big picture isn't right, then you don't have the economic development that you want. And um, I am wildly impressed, truthfully, and, and people who know me know I don't get wildly impressed. I get, get wild, wild, but not wild. Annoyed with stuff, but I don't, but I am in, enormously impressed with the coalition, the NOLA coalition that, that uh, you and others have put together. It is the most collaborative effort that I know of in my, uh, let's see now, 1972. Oh my God, it's, it's 50 years. So um, <laughs> that I have lived here and this is the most collaborative effort I've, I've seen. Um, I'm sorry that crime uh, is, the, is the forebear is what has stimulated it, but you know, it is frequently something really bad and negative that drives something really important and good. Look at the depression drove the WPA, which was one of the strongest programs we've ever had in America. World War II, horrendous, and out of it comes the United Nations and world peace and efforts to really pull together. I mean, you know, to be correct, uh, um, really, it, you, the United Nations has started before that, but it was really World War II that that brought it together in, in a pr productive way. It brought it to New York and everything, right? Yeah. Now we have in 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 the world a very dystopian time. There's no getting away from it. It's, it's been very, very difficult. And, um, and, and yet there's so much promise because people have gotten involved, engaged and organized. And this right. NOLA coalition that you and others have put together is so important. I want you to just start with, I know you have enormous achievements that we'll, we'll cover that in both crime, but also more importantly is, is from my point of view, is really dealing with our youth and making sure that they have the opportunities and the hope that grounds um, a commitment to a, a, um, a positive life rather than um, resorting to working out on the streets. And I, I have a little comment on that. I don't want to forget, remind me if I, if I don't touch on it, the experience with the drop in teen pregnancies, which research has discovered has to do with women having hope and mm -hmm. a sense of opportunity. And I think that's what's missing for too many of our young people in New Orleans. Michael, tell me how this got started, because I wasn't there in the room when that happened. And I'm, I, I'm fascinated to know what was the clincher that really made it come together? Uh, well, thank you for your kind words. Uh, First of all, and Gene, I, you know, I'm, I'm a great fan of yours and your work and your creativity and energy and thoughtfulness that you always put into everything that you, you do. So I, your words carry a lot of weight with me. So thank you for that. Um, and what you said um, really is resonates here about sometimes it takes uh, a challenging situation to create something special. Um, we were walking into a board meeting, an executive committee meeting rather, back in June. And I was talking to Richard Cortesis, my board chair at the time. And I said, uh, Richard, you know, I didn't even, I'm not even putting crime on our agenda to discuss today because I have no idea what we can do at GNO Inc. It's a huge problem. It's a moral problem where we're losing our, 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 our citizens. 
It's also undermining economic development, but I just don't know what to, we're not criminologists, so it's not on the agenda. And Richard looked at me and he said, uh, Michael, it has to be on the agenda because it's just so important to our city in general, let alone economic development. So we talked about it in exec and we said, well, you know, Gino Inc. is not an expert in crime, but we are experts at convening. And so we said, let's just go, you know, in a, in a moment of crisis, fall back on our strengths. And so we decided to get a group of organizations together to discuss what we could do. We thought we would get, um, you know, a few to the table. I think we had like 24 or 25 in our first meeting. Uh, we discussed having this dual platform that would involve public safety, so safety today, but then investment in youth services to create generational change for tomorrow. Um, and by the time we had our press conference to announce it two weeks later, those numbers had already uh, risen to 75 or, or about a little bit more. Uh, and so it became clear pretty early that we were offering a vessel for which there was enormous interest of everybody, of every stripe in the city to pour themselves into their time, their money, their effort. Because uh, it was just such a centrist, reasonable idea that we need to focus on the creating a virtuous cycle of safety and prosperity for our city. And from that point, that kind of constructive dual plank message of safety today and investing in our kids for tomorrow has proven to kind of uh, be increasingly attractive. And we now have over 500 over organizations that are involved representing tens of thousands of employees, about half are nonprofit neighborhood civic organizations. The other half are for-profit as small as entrepreneurs and as big as major banks like Capital One. Um, and then so we kind of unintentionally created a political uh, entity, I guess. Well, I, I think it's interesting that you said political because uh, one of the things I've noted uh, in my preparation for talking with you is that um, the coming together, the collaboration um, amongst organizations, first of all, again, is unheard of uh, at this level in the city. Um, but also getting the council and the mayor and the police and the courts all talking together and, and, and doing their share to advance this is just astounding, really, at a time when we were kind of going down a, a path that was making me very unhappy. This the conflicts between the council and the mayor in particular, I think is very unfortunate. I understand the roots of it and I understand the frustrations, but it's not the right way to, to, to come to a, agreement and make things happen. Um, I wanted to mention to you, um, please, for just a second, um, we're fine now, but there's a tendency for the camera for some reason to be bouncing around a little bit. So what I don't know what's making that happen, but um, uh, uh, don't is it, move. Is it okay now? <laughs> don't move. I don't know what, I think maybe, are, is, the, is the computer in your lap or something? No. No, I'm, I'm actually holding it up. So that's that's what it was. Ah, I, might, it. I might have been adjusting my arm. So um, okay, so let me, yeah. Let me see if I can do it away. So that's going to be. Hold on. Let me see if we do it. Yeah, like, I can cut this out. Um, you know, in the I'll, I'll mark where it is for forty. Hold on. Wait. Let me let me do let me do something here to make this a little bit better. Hold on. Okay. I'm gonna make this. There we go. That's what you need. I'm going to make this perfect, or it's going to be the best of all possible worlds. 
Okay, is that is that better? Yes, that's good. As long as it doesn't move, good. Oh, I'm gonna touch All the right, table. so continue. Um, so, so that's one of the things that I, I I noted about this that at a time when the there's a lot of discord uh, between the branches of government and um, and between some systems of government and others. So between let's say city hall and the courts and and the prisons and so on. And so getting those people in the same room together and talking about okay, you can do this, uh, how about that? And, and they're coming up with their own solutions and, and anteing up. And that's, that's also that engagement and commitment. The only other collaborative effort that I know of that has been really exciting to me um, recently during the pandemic when the, the Creative Response Network, which is a group of arts organizations, over a hundred of those, uh, they came together and that again was the first time I saw true collaboration in the arts community. So there's something there's something going on here and, and sometimes we talk about something going on here about all the bad stuff, but there's something going on here that's really positive. So hallelujah. Talk about some of the things that um, you all have come to the conclusion are priorities both in the um, safety and and uh, in, in the in literally in the criminal justice sector, but uh, for my uh, part, what's really critical is 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 trying to help our youth understand that they do have opportunities, they do have hope, and if they understand them and they and they go after them, then they're not going to feel like they have to get out on the street to to make a living. Yeah. So I mean. Again, the like we said today, everybody, regardless of their political orientation or background, agrees that we can't police our way out of the situation and that um, police and first responders are responding to crises and the way to really manage this effectively over time is to prevent the crises from happening. And that's about things as fundamental as education, physical and mental health, job opportunity, family stability, neighborhood stability, infrastructure, and so that's really where we have to focus a lot of our, our efforts. And so uh, the organizations that we are investing in are ones that are investing in, I guess, what's called sometimes is human infrastructure. So for example, one of the organizations that we profiled today, Posh Push is an organization that uses dance and physical activity as a way of developing physical and mental and spiritual um, um, I guess, integrity or resiliency uh, in young people. And you can imagine that that's uh, an organization that's going to take kids who maybe didn't have a good sense of self-worth uh, or what they're good at and give them something that they could excel at and build their identities around. And that will lead to better choices uh, and better outcomes down the road. And so that's the, the long play. And it's why we're raising $15 million uh, of which we've raised um, a little over 5 million um, so far. Um, on the first plank, public safety, we're focusing on a few specific areas right now. Uh, one is making sure that we do an effective best practice national search for the police chief, including paying them a nationally competitive salary. Um, the second is digging in deep into recruiting and retention, because right now um, it's easier to become a Navy SEAL than it is to become an NOPD officer statistically, and that's somewhat counterintuitive. Um, the third is looking at criminal justice uh, system as a whole, which includes looking at the DA's office, looking at the judiciary, and making sure that, um, that basically 
people are being held uh, in a constitutional way uh, accountable for for bad deeds. Um, there can't be a revolving door that's demoralizing for both police and, and citizens. Um, the fourth one we're looking at is technology. Uh, for example, putting data analysts in every um, in every uh, district. Uh, and then the last one, which I'm actually very excited about, Gene, is that we are looking at violence prevention through the lens of, uh, of public health. So we're working with Dr. Jenna Vegno, who was the lead of COVID for the mayor. And we are trying to determine what are those interventions that we can um, focus on and invest in like de-escalation, mentoring, mental health services, uh, drug services, economic opportunity and job opportunity in order to um, prevent violence before it happens. Um, because as, as Chief Surpass once said to me, we can worry about response times, but by definition, any response time is too long because it means somebody's been hurt. Um, and so what we're hopeful about, Gene, is that if we make these long-term investments in our youth, combine them with measures to mitigate violence today, that not immediately, but over the course of what will inevitably be a number of years, we can get back onto that positive trend that we were on, you know, as recently as 2019. You have to be engaging in these initiatives based on your faith that it's going to work. And, um, and that faith I'm going to assume is based in part on what you're seeing happen in some other communities. We don't talk enough about how many other cities and communities, whether large or small, are going through this same surge in crime that seems to be part of what I've called, and I don't know if you read my newsletter, but I talk about the post-pandemic pandemic. Oh yeah, we're, we're, no doubt. We're, we're having that kind of experience, but you, you have to have looked at, at some cases, some specific programs in other parts of the country, You know, best practices is what they're professionally called. Um, and, and said, wow, okay, they were able to really bring their crime rate down there. And, and one of the programs that they did was, so, so what gave you that, that sense of faith and hope that you saw success elsewhere? Because I think it's important to know that it can succeed. We're not just, you know, you know saying maybe. Right, well, one is, is historical precedent. Um, you know, I lived through the escape from New York Times in New York City to see New York become so safe, it became boring. Um, I saw what happened in the nineties under Moria. Yeah, it was, yeah, remember, you know, there was a moment where Times Square was downright, you know, downright boring and sanitized. We, 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 we fixed that. Um, you know, there was, uh, you know, the nineties under Pennington um, in New Orleans. And then you look at cities today. Now, you know, COVID hit everywhere. It hit some places worse, but everybody dealt with COVID, but some communities um, like St. Louis, as an example, um, have done better at coming back and not having um, as, as difficult of challenges with crime and particularly, you know, violent crime. Um, so we, we've seen historical and current precedents. And then what we've also done is look to um, outside experts. Um, you know, we thought that the mayor bringing in, um, you know, John Linder and Fausto Pichardo from New York City, um, makes a lot of sense. We'd love to understand more about the details of what they're doing, but certain by reputation uh, and, and, and by acclaim, 
there are good things happening under them based on best practices. Um, there is a, um, I believe is a, a, is a criminologist slash psychologist uh, named Thomas Apt that has been brought in under the auspices of Press Kabakov, who does this work um, out of Johns Hopkins. Uh, and he's, so he studied a lot in Baltimore. So he's coming in to work with us on violence prevention. There's a gentleman named Rasmussen who has been brought in from Seattle to talk about um, technology and using technology as a constitutional force multiplier. So I think we've done a, a reasonably good job at not just having kind of a, a justifiable hope, but also beginning to access these best practices around the country. The, the risk now, uh, Gene, is, is not ideas and it's not money because we actually have a lot of money. The risk is now all implementation risk, right? You know, we can have the car, we can have gas in the tank, but we still have to be able to drive it. And um, I think that is what we're trying to focus on now is how can we make sure that institutionally we have the right people and processes in place to execute on these best practice ideas with the money we have from ARPA and IAJA and, 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 the, and the post-pandemic sales tax. I'm not um, with ARPA. What, I, I noticed that was mentioned a couple of times, so forgive my ignorance. So uh, ARPA was the American Rescue Plan Act. Oh, oh and um, yeah, everything's an acronym now. It sounds, ARPA sounds like a killer whale at SeaWorld, yeah. you know, yeah. but ARPA, you know, gave the city, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars of which now it's been allocated to equipment and, um, and technology upgrades um, and youth services. And so these are all smart allocations but to take an example, the technology upgrade uh, meant to integrate our criminal justice system, executing on that is difficult. It's politically difficult, it's technologically difficult. And so that's the next step. You know, it's kind of, was it Shakespeare, many a slip twixt the cup on the lip? You know, so we have the cup right here now, we gotta get, gotta get the good stuff inside. I do want to, um, I can't resist, of course, we're talking about uh, some things that are dear to my heart, as you know, and um, I'm uh, hoping that um, uh, we will see uh, some commitment of some of that, you call it ARPA, I, I tend to be just calling it the relief money, but um, to, to see some of that money go into the creative industries sector, not just the arts, but the creative industries, which of course includes, as you know, and you've been doing the music business, but film business as well, media, online work, design, even engineering, culinary, uh -huh. literary, the whole mix is something that we have special um, capability and, and, and uh, branding. I mean, we are actually known for what we achieve innovatively in all of these categories. Um, and I'm, I'm not seeing, let me put it this way, I'm not at the table enough to really know, are right. we going to see some of this relief money go into that broader category that can be the basis of growth in our economy at a time when you know, the, the business with energy seems to come and go up and down. Now the latest I hear is that they're making a new commitment to wells in the Gulf, et cetera. That's wonderful, but it's still all short-term. And long-term, we need to know where our economy is going to be uh, evolving in the coming decades. And so 
our creative abilities are so phenomenal and we've had world impact, but we haven't made the investment that reflects that commitment. So Michael, to be frank, I've been trying to reach out and understand how, where the lobbying needs to happen to make sure that some of that money comes into this broader category. And I've talked to quite a few people and um, I, I don't, uh, I don't see it yet. Yeah. Um, you know, I wish I could tell you otherwise there at the federal level, there have been real dollars that have come down in other future growth areas. So for example, we got a $75 million grant to lead a green hydrogen project for South Louisiana, which is about um, clean energy and clean industry. So that's very great. much you know, analogous, right? But in the arts, it feels like from what I'm seeing, I'm seeing and reading that the creative industries, that the monies that are getting spent are getting spent on what feels like more piecemeal type subsidies as opposed to investments in catalytic systemic growth, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so, you know, supporting our culture bearers through grants, there's nothing wrong with, with that per se, because our culture bearers are um, the underpaid, under, undervalued, mm -hmm. right? And they're the roots of our culture. There's no getting away from it. Our no, absolutely not. Very strong, yeah. However, if we're not doing things to drive structural change, so that means that our creative industries are going to be supported and grow without irregular subsidies, then we're not going to get you know anywhere. And so with our music economy initiative, we've been trying to work on developing a sustainable structure around, at least in this case, music, uh, so that it's not reliant on, on one-time money. So one thing that we're doing, for example, is we've set up an internship program called Miked Up, which works with our universities like Loyola and gives students paid apprenticeships at local music management companies like uh, Mid-Citizen Entertainment that manages Big Frida and Tank and the Bangas and such. And the idea is that if we can begin to create those connections between industry and the universities, it, they will they'll, they, they will institutionalize because the universities will develop programming to feed into those companies and the companies will be able to grow here because they've got enough workforce. So we're trying to um, look for ways to systematize the support for creative industries as opposed to it just being charitable one-time support. Exactly. That's a, that's precisely what we need. And I hope that the people who um, we have strong representation in, in Washington, I mean, you can't do much better than having the person who's who's the head of the whole program for structural commitments on the part of the administration be our former mayor, um, Mitch Landrew. And um, and then we have, um, you know, Troy Carter, we have, I think, I think some of the other guys that we have not really focused on in this area, Cassidy's and the Graves and the Kennedy's and the Scalise's, I think we have to get through to them. Scalise was actually one of, did you know this, was one of the early supporters of the film industry? Did yeah, you know? I do. Well, you know, Steve comes from a tech background, so I'm not, I'm not shocked by that. Um, and, um, you know, I, we actually have a really good delegation right now. I mean, you know, relative to, um 
a lot of other things. And what they will all tell you, I know that, that Mayor Landry will tell you this, as will any of the senators and the Congress people, is that the money is there. We have to come to them with a consolidated plan and then be ready to execute. And so uh, when I was up at Washington Mardi Gras a couple of weeks ago, and the message that I heard from them is, don't come to us with everybody's piecemeal requests. Come to us with a consolidated request. And so that's, we're, we're trying to be the forcing function on that at GNO Inc. in a number of areas, uh, like getting funding for the access road for the new container facility down in, in St. Bernard. But it's a little bit difficult because there's a little bit of fragmentation uh, in how the dollars are being we, we uh, asked for. We won't talk about that one right now. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, you can delete that part from the... Okay. I won't delete it. I mean, I think there's a lot of support for growing our um, our port industry in general. Uh, it's just a question of where's the best place to do that, and That's uh, right. there's there's debate on that. Um, I I think that um, what I'm 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 hearing and what I'm saying uh, is there's a there's a mesh there between my concern that we really. Uh, do look at the creative industries as an economic uh, area of tremendous opportunity. And now is a moment in time when this money is coming in from the federal level to help that we right. cannot afford to miss in terms of supporting that particular sector, which we yeah. have so much power. And strength. I, you know, I've actually myself replaced some of my teachers in, in the classroom in our Creative Futures program, which trains high school kids to understand their creative opportunities. And I have um, been exposed to how difficult the lives of some of these youth are, but, oh, yeah. but their, their hope and their promise and their creative abilities has been astounding. So I know that this is an area that uh, we need to grow. But that was, I couldn't resist um, kind of um, honing in on the, uh, for a moment. But um, what what are some of the other, um, uh, some of the areas of focus in, in the on the criminal justice side that we haven't really uh, focused on so far? We have just a little bit more time and I would love to. Well, so I think there's just kind of three areas that I would just kind of name that we have to learn a lot more about. One is the juvenile justice system, which is uh, both legally and I would argue or would, would, would say uh, intentionally obfuscated. Um, I think it's pretty clear to anybody that's watching the juvenile justice system is broken, is broken and it's not serving our juveniles and it's not serving justice. So we're trying to understand better um, what's going on in there. Um, I think that the judiciary is an area that um, is often overlooked, but the judges have tremendous discretion in how the law is applied. And um, I mean, the, a judge is the reason that we have, um, you know, gambling in Louisiana, even though it's outlawed in our constitution, because a judge said, oh, no, no, that's not gambling, that's gaming. I mean, you know, the, the judge, the judiciary is where the money, money, the uh, rubber meets the road, it matters. Um, and then I think, um, more broadly, it's about looking at what you started the conversation with, Gene, which is um, how do we give our children structure and self-worth and hope? You know, um, these kind of soft social determinants and cultural determinants, sometimes you're not supposed to talk about them. But if you ask any child what they really want, They'll say they want attention, they want love, they want structure. 
these are human needs. And I think that um, we have to figure out ways to, for example, support our mothers, our working mothers better so they can provide this structure. We have to do things so that uh, we can help our fathers be better fathers. Um, we have to understand that there is no single earner household anymore, right? That doesn't exist. Um, so we have to make sure that our institutions um, shift to allow for homes where both parents are gonna be out until five or 6 p.m. every day. Um, I would say those are three areas that we need to keep pushing into and they get more into the, how we got here over hundreds of years type of discussion. So now you're getting me into red wine territory. Yeah, now this, it, 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 it is deep and um, incredibly challenging and ambitious what you're doing. Um, but I, I, I have more faith than um, ever since I've been here. I mean, I, I've been through, let's see, um, I, co I covered, well, I worked with Moon when I first came here working for George McGovern, if you can believe wow. that. Yeah. And, um, and then I, I worked with Sydney. I worked with all of the mayors that I've been here with. I either worked for them or with them or covered them. And um, there's been a tendency in New Orleans for us to kind of start climbing up the hill and then something happens and we kind of go. That's yeah. right. That's you know, right. it's happened. I've, I've seen it happen again and again. But I think right now, a uh, combination of, again, some of this um, a, a attempt to be more collaborative in the arts area, but also in, in the more broad area that comes out stimulated by the, the uh, crime situation, but goes way beyond it. Um, I really think that this is going to have a lasting and sustainable impact. And I'm grateful to you and all the people that you've been working with in making this happen. I wish I could have been more involved so far. I've got health no, family that I've family got family first we, we know yeah. that and, and and I'd like to tell you that this is going to be solved next week and you would have missed your opportunity to be involved but no nah. I think there'll still be something for you to do is <laughs> the you. the truth and look you know I, I'll end this by saying I mean you said it sometimes it takes a challenge for something wonderful to happen I mean you know there's a very true saying that it takes great pain to make great art and so I hope you know that we can really make something beautiful out of this Thank you. Thank you very much for doing it. And thank you for the time to talk about it and uh, keep me informed uh, if you ever want to get the word out. I had um, Dr. Vegno on last week oh, and good. I'm, I'm going to be having people on, on this subject uh, ongoing. This is, this is what we do. So. Um, well, I can see you. Well, so awesome. Thank you, Jane. Appreciate right. you. You take care. Best of Bob. Thank have, you. Uh, have a good carnival season too. Happy, happy Mardi Gras. Thanks, darling. Ciao, ciao. Like the earth revolves around the sun, our lives in circles never to be done. But all those dreams that circle in your mind aren't what they seem. So let we have Nicholas Payton in the house, so to speak, in the Zoom house, and um, we are thrilled to have him on today because he is a Grammy winner again, right? This is your second, Correct. I believe you said. Um, so that's really great. And, and it's part of um, a history. I think I can't safely say this because I don't know the data exactly, but year after year, pretty much, somebody from New Orleans wins a Grammy. 
And I think that it's a little bit of a, a reminder of the incredible talent, innovation, and legacy, both, that we have here. And um, you're in the jazz category. So tell me a little bit about your award, the, the uh, players that were with you on this venture. And I'm sure when you did it, you weren't thinking Grammy, you were just thinking about the art you were creating. So uh, share with me a little bit about what, what you guys had in mind when you recorded. Yeah, well, the project that was awarded was uh, for Terry Lynn Carrington's New Standards Volume 1 album. Uh, and the concept of the album, uh, there's a corresponding book, book in which uh, Terry Lynn uh, and uh, a few others, I believe, uh, compiled of 101 women composers. Wow. So okay. All yeah. the tunes on the album are in this book. Um, and I guess it's going to be a series that she's going to do that features uh, various women composers, you know. So, yeah, this is not only a victory for Terry Lynn and uh, her being a trailblazer, uh, particularly for women in music, um, but just, you know, for good music, period. You know, all of the compositions are masterfully composed, and uh, it was just an honor for me to be a part of the project. I, um, I've heard from more than one woman uh, in music of how hard um, it has been for them. Um, Dee Dee Bridgewater is a good friend of mine and I interviewed her not too long ago and she said, um, she talked about, you know, the difficulties of dealing with, um, well, let's call it uh, at one point in history, a, a pretty macho environment. Mm -hmm. and um and having to break through that is a, a second job i mean the first job is is creating and, and producing the music and then distributing it at the whole thing i mean that's enough there but then to deal with the um the impediments um which we all uh deal with at different levels uh and and increasingly this era that we're in right now is recognizing that in a in a way that it hasn't before so hopefully this will come out of this phase with um maybe a a, a diminishing of the um restrictions of those impediments hopefully you know that is the goal and i think more situations like this um uh, uh that break that kind of ground, you know, brings more awareness um, to the cause. And um, just so very proud of Terry Lynn for not only being an excellent musician, like that's one thing, but also her stance on, you know, social justice issues, uh, which is not something we find a lot of artists doing these days, many of whom are afraid to speak up for fear of, you know, getting canceled and so forth. Uh, so the amount of um, fearlessness it takes for, for uh, Terry Lynn to, to do what she does uh, is quite admirable. I think also um, it's fair to say that not only women have had this struggle, but um, jazz musicians themselves um, have had to really uh, stay the course in order to, to uh, proceed and uh, develop your career and stay with the um, genre of music that you want to. I can't help but think of um, Miles Davis was one of my favorites as a high school student way back. <laughs> I hate to admit how far back. Um, and I was, you know, I, I wasn't, I won't say I was disappointed, but um, 
I was concerned when he was getting into kind of a pop genre for a bit. And I, I knew that, you know, sometimes we just want to explore other genres and, and other times we feel like we need to. So I'm not sure what the thinking was on his part. Genre is a false classification. And it's certainly not anything uh, the musicians uh, think of when they're creating. Um, and uh, that's why I've taken the stance I have. I'm pretty anti-jazz, so I don't like the terminology for how it marginalizes the musicians. And when you say jazz, it typically means less money. It typically means your award will not be on the actual telecast of the Grammy, but it'll be on the pre-telecast. Um, so uh, jazz is, is, is a bit of a stepchild of pop music. Well, which is ironic because the first pop music was so-called jazz music. Louis Armstrong was the world's first pop star. That idea didn't even exist before him, uh, largely due to the fact that his uh, artistic um, rise to fame coincided with the technological advent of the phonograph, which allowed everyone, everyone in the world to hear the same piece of music at roughly the same time. And it help catapult him to a different level of fame, otherwise not known before. Um, so, and this music was not originally called jazz. Um, so I, I just think it's a misnomer and uh, at best an, an, an insult and it's, it's uh, oppressive. I think it's an oppressive limiting term. And uh, my personal struggle in this has been to uh, try to break through that uh, stigmatism that jazz carries with it. And Miles Davis was also uh, not a fan of the word, as was Duke Ellington, and Ahmad Jamal, Youssef Latif, Max Roach, so many uh, elders, uh, Duke Ellington, Sidney Bechet, uh, they were not a fan of that word. I knew if I did an interview with you, I would get educated. And that is a big, powerful education. I, I'm somebody who, again, I grew up in the South Bronx and spent my weekends at the Apollo and listened to what I thought was jazz and mm -hmm. listened to Symphony Sid. And I can remember so many mornings. I lived on a street called 149th Street in the Bronx. And um, it was a street that the, the merchants who uh, um, still had carts that would go to and from the farmer's market down the street from me would pass. So. Um, it would be dawning and I would hear the clip-clop of their horses and I would still be listening to jazz on Symphony Sid and, at that hour of the morning. So I was a fan and I, I would never have thought of the word as pejorative. So this is coming as a little bit of a shock to me, to be honest. Okay. I, I understand why you're saying it. And it's, it was for, I, I asked the question in that context of knowing that jazz musicians have, have had a hard time um, in... in um, and, and let's say monetizing their work. But um, I still would resist, um, is, is, is it that we don't wanna put a word to it? Is, is that where we are? Well, when people ask me that, a lot of this uh, got set off uh, in, in terms of my personal trajectory with the word on a post I wrote in 2011 called on why jazz isn't cool anymore. Uh, many people have called it a manifesto. Some people called it a poem. Uh, really what it was is me live 
tweet streaming uh, one afternoon before uh, a sound check. And I kind of felt something energetically different about what I was saying then. And I'd been speaking about it for two years before, but it didn't really get traction. So when I was done with that tweet session, I basically copied and pasted each line and put it in a WordPress document and uh, hit post. And that went viral and set off uh, 10 years of, of a conversation and debate. Um, but uh, interestingly enough, this past year, Tulane University became the first uh, university to eschew its jazz department in favor of Black American music. Um, and that post that I'm speaking to was the genesis of what has now become known as the BAM movement. So Black American music, BAM is an acronym for hashtag BAM. Uh, so that's basically what it is to me. And I don't want to be separated from rock and roll, pop, soul, gospel, hip hop, funk. You know, all of these are children of, of, of Black music. And I want access to all of it, not just some, and be relegated to jazz over here in the corner where you get paid less. I'm not interested. And I think that... Um... Musicians in New Orleans, in particular, uh, do um, dip into all of those different forms of music. Yeah, and and it's everybody it's, it's one of the things. Everybody plays everything in New Orleans. You know, even uh, patriarch of New Orleans music, like you know Ellis Marcellus, he played all sorts of styles. Harold Baptiste, my father Walter Payton, Kid Jordan, Kid, Kid Jordan, Jordan uh, yeah. extreme, you know side of the avant-garde and he was Stevie Wonder's first call when he'd come to town for a horn section. Yeah. And most of the musicians I'm, I grew up with in New Orleans are like that. They played everything. Yeah. I, I, I remember Kid Jordan in particular uh, being shocked because he was so out as in his own work and then finding out that he was also playing in the pits at the Sanger or um, for, um, you know, for uh, Broadway shows. Mm -hmm. uh, was uh, sort of startling to me at the time, and um, and I, I kid uh, his his uh, son um, was uh, at one time uh, my accompanist for modern dance classes at Tulane, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I I I couldn't put a genre and what we did in there either in dance wise or music wise, and and that was um, an experience that should have taught me what you just told me. And uh, I should have learned that uh, way long ago. But um, tell me something about playing music in New Orleans versus other places. Another experience I had when I was doing those two drop-in shows at the CAC several decades ago um, was having, I think it was, I think it was Johnny Vodakovich who was talking about how when he would leave New Orleans, and musicians leave New Orleans in general to play, their music would be faster because mm -hmm. something to do with us being either at or below sea level and the resistance somehow in our environment having an effect on the music. Is that there's, something you've ever observed? There's something to that, I think. Um, environmental factors, geography does have an impact on a culture. Um, and the laid back nature of New Orleans and its heat and humidity uh, and how dense it is 
certainly a factor in how people play. Art is a reflection of life, how people live, how a city moves. And uh, that certainly can be heard in the feel, in the soul of New Orleans music, uh, much like music in New York, uh, which is very a, a very fast paced city. Uh, the winters are often very brutal. Uh, people are, because there's so many people crammed into a little place and people living on top of each other, it's a very hectic kind of place. And a music like bebop music, I feel like could only come from a space, an environment like that. It's a, the product of the energy of New York. Uh, you have a Detroit- Hip hop for that matter. There you which go. finally yeah. got celebrated in the current uh, Abbey's, uh, uh, Grammys. That was that was quite a moment. There you go. Same thing. West Coast music has a certain vibe to it. The sun of California and the feel and the air of it and being close to the sea, uh, that has an impact on the sound of the music. Kansas City music sounded a certain way. Like all the, the geography of, of not only the United States, but the world, music's are a product of their environment and their geography, as well as the people. So you still live at least part-time in New Orleans, is that right? I mean, that's home, I, that's where I live. So when I'm not on the road, that's where I am. Um, and, and people have the challenge, and I feel like right now that challenge is um, in some ways greater than it's been in a while of making their work um, reach the audience that it should and could uh, and, and making a deci decision to work from here as opposed to leaving here. I mean, that's been a, 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 an issue for New Orleans for century. Sure. But um, tell me, tell me how you feel about living and working here versus the choice of, of, of going someplace else. Uh, like many New Orleanians, you know, I kind of have somewhat of a love-hate <laughs> relationship with New Orleans. Um, for all of its beauty and charm and natural cultural resources, I feel like the infrastructure uh, is such that I don't, we don't respect or regard artists in the light that we should, you know, which cause, you know, uh, an artist like Louis Armstrong to leave and vow to never come back. You know, he, there was some maybe stretch of 30 years after like the 40s, sometime, sometime he came down and it was respected. He didn't come back until like 1970, 71. Um, and that, that, that thing is still prevalent, unfortunately, in New Orleans uh, culture, or a lack of regard of culture, as we saw like a, a couple of years ago when they were trying to build a city hall on Congo Square. I mean, that's unfathomable, unfathomable to me that that would even be a consideration. And I feel like that's the type of thing that could only happen in New Orleans, unfortunately. So, you know, but maybe that that's a part of that juxtaposition as a part of what also makes New Orleans what it is. It's a city that celebrates birth and death uh, for all of its life. We also are in the top five murder cities uh, for all the love and community uh there's also this other dark element too so i don't know i, I always have hopes that we uh get to a point where we, we can resolve some of those ills because you know it is a beautiful place to live aside for the fact that it's oftentimes not so i don't know i don't have all the answers but 
that 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 dichotomy has always plagued the city, as far as I know, in its history. And um, I, it's hard to ignore the fact that racism and poverty are um, root causes for that. Um, and young people, and and I feel very strongly about this right now, as we try to tackle the latest crime wave, which we pretend is only something happening in New Orleans when it's actually happening in cities all over America. Again, it's part of this post-pandemic pandemic, as I call it, um, that uh, I, I don't know, people seem to have lost their way to some extent, but really the heart of the matter is that we don't prepare our youth for being able to develop their careers in their creative talents. We have incredible level of creativity amongst our people here. It's just, I'm from New York and I, I dealt with creativity up there as much as I do here. And uh, the, the a breadth of it throughout the population here is just awesome, remarkable and, and way above the breadth of it in another city. And it's not that they, you don't have an enormous amount of creativity in New York and it's celebrated and it's marketed and it generates more income, but um, the number of people in the city here who have creative ability is remarkable and they are not getting the tools they need to be able to really advance that. So a Nicholas Payton, a um, Terrence Blanchard who hallelujah won the Grammy for um, his opera, and, and that's a huge landmark, um, but we don't have the um, preparation that makes it facilitates and encourages our young people to pursue creative careers, which is something on my organizational side I, I, I dwell on and, and address, but we ain't there yet. Well, yeah, I mean, we live in a country which puts more funding behind prisons than they do education. So long as that exists, I think we're going to be in this situation that uh, would prefer to feed a penal system than to educate people so that there's more of a level playing field in society. So, And you know, I'm not sure that it's a matter of preference in a way. It comes out as preference, but I think it's a, a matter of kind of ignorance, neglect, turning their heads the other way um, and, and just that's, not dealing with what I mean, that's intentional. Of us can do. That's a choice at this point. Yeah. You know? Especially if you're a government official, you should know better. That's your job. And if you're going to turn your head the other way or take kickbacks or whatever, because this is what fuels the system, we still live in a, a plantation system. And that's what it comes down to. There's been books and studies on it. They don't want to deal with it. And to me, that's a choice, which is why I say preference. Like as long as they choose that over education and, and equity amongst the people, then we're gonna be in the situation we're in. It's gonna get worse, you know, it's just gonna get worse, so. What about your next project? What, what's up with you? I'm in San Francisco right now working on a new album. It's called, what is it gonna be called? The tentative title is Queens of the Playground. And uh, speaking of albums and tribute to women, this is uh, an album of original compositions all dedicated to women. And I'm actually recording in a studio called Hyde Street Studios, which used to be called Wally Hyder, which many of my favorite Herbie Hancock albums was recorded in. So I can feel the energy, you know coming from the walls of all the great music that was there. Santana did a lot of projects there. Uh, 
Michelle Indigio Cello, Tupac, so many great artists. So yeah, it's I'm in called I Street now. I Street Studios, yeah. How, how do you spell that? H I H Y D E. H Y D E. Regina, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna have to bounce. I know. Uh, I, I, I appreciate it very much. We kind of strayed off it a little bit, but um, I, I knew that we would, and I um, I wanted to hear what you had to say, and I'm, I'm grateful for your time, and good luck with that piece. And um, I hope within our lifetime, we will see heads turn. I hope so. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.